If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through this study in the Bible, and it's walking through the storyline of Scripture, seeing how it all fits together to tell us this one great story of God and his people and how much he loves us, expressed ultimately in the person of Jesus. Now, we believe that the Bible is the authority, that God's word. I'm not up here telling you what I think about life. I'm telling you what God has said about life in his word and doing my best to get out of the way and let it speak for itself. Today is one of those rare times we're going to be looking at this period between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And because of that, by nature, there is no scripture on it. So this is one of the very rare times where I am really not preaching scripture, okay? So this is your first time here and you're like, this is heresy. You didn't even open the Bible once. We're going to College Heights, right? Chill out. We'll be back in the New Testament next week. It's all good. Um, But uh, what I want us to do is review. This is your favorite part and mine. We have these motions that help remind us of these major story events in the Bible. This week, we're looking at 400 years of silence. So I'm actually just going to stand up here and say nothing for 400 years, right? (laughs) Uh, No. So their motion for the silence is just simply going to be silence. Very straightforward, all right? So from the top, we've got God. Creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, and silence. There you go. Excellent. Um, Now, if, if you're like me and you got a background in showbiz, you'll know that in the theater, right, that's how you have to say it if you're in showbiz, uh, and the little motion helps with pretentiousness. Um, so in the first act, um, all, there's all these characters, these backdrops, and then the curtain falls, and, and then there's some shuffling behind the scenes. They have a curtain so you can't see what's going on. And then when the curtain comes back up for act two, all of a sudden, there's a new backdrop right? And then they have different wardrobes. There's different characters. And and there's a change that's happened between the first act and and the second act um, in the theater. Now, when the... (laughs) Come on, Justin. I had a cup of coffee this morning, so I'm ready to go for Jesus. Um, So the, the, the curtain falls on the Old Testament. And, if, and you've been walking through the story with us. And the people of Judah, the remnant of Judah, has come back into the land. Remember, they had been exiled. They've come back. They're under Persian rule. And they're rebuilding everything. So that's when the curtain drops. But when the curtain comes back up in the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew, all of a sudden there's this whole different world. And, and maybe you're like me, and you start reading, and you go, man, what in the world is going on? Like, all of a sudden, there's Pharisees and Sadducees, and there's, like, all these Romans walking around. Well, they're, they're Roman. Um, <laughs> coffee. And I'm cutting coffee out in the morning. So, you know, and, and there's the synagogues, and, and there's Herod and Caesar. Like, there's all these new people. What in the world? Where did they come from? And today's message is going to be a peek behind the curtain into these 400 years of silence. We're going to see these Pharisees frantically getting dressed, right? Mary getting her rouge touched up. Herod rehearsing his lines. Some diva sheep is getting dramatic, right? Settle down. You're an extra. Um, some important stuff is... This is the intro. Come on, buddy. Some important stuff is going down in this scene change. And if we're going to understand the New Testament properly, we need to know some of the context. What's going on when the curtain rises on the New Testament? 
Well, we see this 400 years of silence, and the reason that we call it that is this is a period of time between the return from exile and Jesus coming onto the scene that the Bible doesn't address. There's no history uh, written by, by, by a, there's no prophecy, there's no, there's no word from God. Now, there are what we call the apocryphal writings. You can see that like in a Catholic Bible. There are First and Second Maccabees. There are historical accounts. A man named Josephus wrote some of the history. There's plenty of documentation on what went down, but there's nothing in what we call the biblical canon, the 66 books of the Bible that we recognize as, as divine inspiration from God that is written on this subject. So what happened? Well, you remember at the end of the Old Testament, there are two kingdoms. Remember, they're divided. And you've got the northern kingdom, Israel. They were taken away into exile by the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. And we said that tragically, they become known as the ten lost tribes of Israel because they never are restored as a national entity. They are enslaved, dispersed throughout the world, never to return on the scene again as a kingdom. And that's true to this day. The next nation is called Judah. They're the southern kingdom. It's where the capital Jerusalem is. And the Babylonians, when they had taken over Assyria, they exiled Judah in 586 B.C. Now, there is a remnant of Judah that's returned, God being faithful to keep a remnant of his people alive, the hope of the coming deliverer. God is faithful to his promise, and so he keeps this remnant alive. He keeps the hope, his promises, alive. And, and, and if you've ever heard the term, you know, we think about where does the word Jew come from? It just simply comes from the, the nation or the tribe of Judah. So we kind of see a shift in language from talking about, like, the Israelites to the Jews. It's not a nationally necessarily a different group of people. It's just because at this point, as the Israelites, the northern kingdom's been dispersed, we're primarily referring to those from the southern kingdom, the Jews, right? So um, what, what happens here is they, we enter into a time known as the time of the Gentiles. The Gentile just means non-Jew. So this is a period of time where Israel, as a national entity, really ceases from being a world power, which they were for most of the Old Testament. And now this time, and we believe until Jesus comes back and restores national Israel and becomes the king, really, of the whole world, this is a time where the Gentile powers are going to be ruling. Now, during the exile, Daniel, one of the prophets of God, we talked about the prophets last week, a spokesman of God. They're in Babylon, and the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream. And nobody can, can tell him what this dream means. And God gives Daniel the ability to tell him exactly what's going on. So he tells Nebi, he says, here's what's going down in your dream. And because he had this dream of these, this statue made of these different materials. And he says, these represent these world powers that are going to come onto the scene and rule. And so he breaks down this dream. And here, here is an actual picture of that statue. I can't believe we got this. Um, there's four kingdoms, okay, as you can see, they're Babylon and, and Medo-Persia, uh, Gr the Greeks and, and the Romans. They're going to rule in succession over the next hundreds, about a thousand years, really. But then it's so cool because it says this rock that has not been cut by human hands. In other words, a, a kingdom that's coming that is not man-centered is going to come and destroy these kingdoms and set up his rule and reign forever. And that rock 
we know to be Jesus. Jesus will rule and he will reign. And so what happens is from this point forward, exactly what Daniel prophesied comes true. Remember, we talked about each empire being bigger and more powerful. We had Assyria on the scene for about 700 years. They're the ones that took Israel away. Well, then the bigger fish, Babylon, comes, swallows up Assyria. They're the ones in charge. They're the first world power in Daniel's interpretation of Nebi's dream that they're gonna, they take over Assyria, they're in control when Judah gets exiled, and then an even bigger fish comes along, Persia, and they swallow up Babylon. Now Persia's in control, they're the ones in control at the end of the Old Testament. And remember, God, in his sovereignty, Cyrus is a kind king, and he allows the different nations that they've conquered to go back into their own lands and worship their original gods. And so the Jews are allowed to go back into the land of Judah, and they start worshiping God again through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. They start rebuilding the temple and, and the walls of Jerusalem, orders being restored in Jerusalem. But there's a series of unfortunate events from this point forward. Um, Persia, they're in control about the last hundred years of the Old Testament and about the first hundred years of that 400 years of silence. Okay, everybody with me? All right, good, sweet. Now, world power number three, okay? World power number three, the Greeks step onto the scene, and that middle kind of 200 years of the, the, the silence, the Greeks are ruling. And now there's this man, you may have heard of him, Alexander the Great. He steps in, he's one of the Greek rulers, and he's playing like a real-life game of risk, where he just starts taking over nation after nation, and this empire becomes huge. And one of the things that happens with the Greek Empire, and one of the things that they, they are very proud of their own Greekness, okay? And so they want everyone else to be like them. And so instead of like oppressive conquering, like remember Assyria and how nasty they were, um, the Greeks are pretty friendly, like the Persians, but what they do is they, they, they push, they kind of they promote their Greek lifestyle, their, their, the way they see the world, their values on the different nations that they conquer. And so what we see um, with the, um, under this time of Greek rule is Jewish worship starts to decline. And, and slowly... Yahweh is nudged off the throne of the hearts of the Israelites. And doesn't this happen a lot? I mean, think about it in our country today. What would be a more effective tool to finish Christianity in our country? Government oppressively saying you can't worship anymore? Or us slowly buying in to the culture and the values around us? And so what happens is after Alexander dies, there's this series of successively more and more aggressive Greek rulers until we get to this guy. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And besides being a great name for an 80s hairband, he is the most evil ruler that the Greeks have ever seen. And, and, and what he does is he steps in, he invades Jerusalem, and he attempts to, by force, wipe out all forms of of worship of Yahweh. And he starts to forbid the practices that have become so central to the Jewish life. He says you can no longer circumcise. Remember, that was their covenant with God that set them apart as a people. He says you can no longer sacrifice. Remember, that's the way that they continue to look forward to Jesus. You can no longer celebrate your Sabbaths and your festivals. And he says anyone who disobeys these new rules will be put to death. 
But then the most tragic thing that he does comes on December 15th, 167 BC. He walks into the temple, the holy place where God meets man. Remember, there's all these laws of what the temple is supposed to look like and how the priests are supposed to come in and offer sacrifices just to walk into the temple. And he brings in this huge pig, which was the most unclean and heinous of all the animals. Poor, poor pig. In, 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 the, in the Jewish belief system, he brings this pig in and sacrifices it on an altar in the temple. He makes the priests swallow the flesh of this pig. They make this broth out of the pig, and he just splatters it all over the temple. And then he walks into the Holy of Holies, the place where only the high priest once a year is supposed to enter. And if he doesn't enter properly, they have a rope tied around his ankle to pull him back out because he will die if he doesn't enter in that way at the right place in the right way. Antiochus comes marching into the Holy of Holies and he sets up a statue of Jupiter on top of the mercy seat, the representative place where God meets with Israel, where he displays his Shekinah glory and they make a mockery of it. We can't, in our culture today, conceive of something more horrific to happen to everything that we believe in. Many believe this is what is the first fulfillment of what's called the abomination of desolation. Now these are prophecies, these things, people have different opinions on this, but basically Daniel talked about this time, and, and we see this is probably the first of three times this has happened. In 70 AD, after Jesus has gone back to heaven, uh, the Romans, they burn the temple to the ground, and then the ultimate fulfillment will be when the Antichrist comes in the end times and sets himself up to be worshipped in the temple and will kill anybody that doesn't worship him. This is why they call Antiochus the Antichrist of the Old Testament times. Now, then in 165, though, the Jews fight back. And there's this thing called the Maccabean Maccabean Revolt. And this guy named Judah Maccabee and, and his family, they band together. And it's sort of this like Cinco de Mayo moment, right? This sort of like rallying the troops, the David and Goliath. And they fight back against the man and they take over, they take back over their land and the temple. And, 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 and remember how it had been completely desecrated on December 25th, does that date ring a bell? Uh, they cleanse the temple and they rededicate it to God. Now they have this festival, this festival of dedication. The Hebrew word for dedication is Hanukkah. You have the Hanukkah. You got to get that, right? Get the spittle. Get right. And so during this time, what happens is the story, the story goes in Maccabees that they, they want to relight the menorah or the lampstand in the, in, the, in the holy place. And they can only find this one little small jug of oil. And these jugs, these jars are really only supposed to last for about a day. But, but they say that the, the oil burned for eight days and eight nights. And that's where we get the celebration of Hanukkah for eight crazy nights you get that reference, like me, you're not a good Christian. No. Uh, (laughs) So the Jewish people, they're self-governed for about a hundred years. 
kind of the, toward the end of this period of silence, they actually reclaim the land, reclaim the temple. Things seem to be good. But then, again, a series of unfortunate events. The Greeks are overtaken by the Romans, and the Romans take over Judah. Now the fourth world power, the Roman Empire, sets up, really kind of becomes an official world power empire around 27 BC. Now, a couple of names you'll probably recognize. The first Caesar, or emperor, is Augustus Caesar, and uh, he is the Caesar that's in control when the New Testament curtains rise. And, and then what they do is they kind of divide their kingdom into these little provinces. And every province has kind of this local puppet king that's overseeing that province. And you see this little one down there in the corner, that's Judea. That's kind of the Roman word for Judah. And there is a king who's placed in charge over the Judea, Judean province, and his name is Herod, Herod the Great, the king of Judah, Judea, when Jesus comes onto the scene. And you've read it, Luke 2. Augustus Caesar takes a census, right? Herod the Great, he's the one that's killing all the babies when Jesus is born. This is the world that God's chosen people are living in when the New Testament curtain rises and Jesus steps onto the scene. And this is not a fun world to live in. And you imagine, if we're living in Soldatna, and you've got another country oppressively ruling you, and there was this heavy taxation going on in the people, or they're being ravaged of their possessions to give it to the Caesar, to give it to the Romans. And out of 400 years of oppression and empire baton passing, another important thing happens, and there's a shift in the way that Israel worships. See, as you remember, and we just talked about the temple and how central it was to their, their worship of God and this place where God would meet man. It's where Israel would come and worship him and where they would sacrifice these animals, indicating death is the payment of sin, that this animal's dying in my place as they looked forward to the coming deliverer that would ultimately be their substitute for their sins. Everything in the life of worship centered around this temple. But sadly, when the Babylonians came and they exiled Judah... They also destroyed the temple. We see it destroyed several times in this process. And even more tragically, when the temple's rebuilt, the priests, they start moving away from their central job of leading the people into worship, of leading them in their sacrifices, and they get wrapped up into politics. And so this temple starts to be destroyed, not just physically, but also spiritually in its purpose of what God had originally intended. And so this new spiritual leadership arises. And there's these men called scribes who scrupulously are copying God's word on scrolls. That's why they were called scribes. That's how they originated. Um, they didn't have a Xerox back then, so it was a much more, um, a much more involved process. But these men, they kind of graduate from just being copiers of the law. They actually become teachers of the law. And what we see is this shift in Israel's mindset, the Jewish mindset, from temple worship to law teaching. Okay? And so, and what part of what we see from this is a move away from this one temple to multiple, the word they used was synagogues. You might recognize that word from, from the New Testament. Jesus teaches in the synagogue. And these synagogues, the word synagogue, it means assembly, like to gather together, to assemble. And be, these synagogues become the center of Jewish life. 
their religious life, uh, intellectual. There's a lot of teaching that goes on. This is when the rabbis, which means teacher, comes on to the scene. And there's actually this really cool place where they are teaching God's word and learning God's word. Um, just life together is happening. But with this new synagogue, these two groups, uh, these leaderships emerge. And you've probably recognized these names, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's also the Essenes, but they don't really um, jump onto the Essene uh, very prominently. (laughs) All right, we're here. Um, So these two men, and, and you usually see them getting chewed out by... Jesus, right? And he doesn't like either one of these parties very much. So let's talk about them for a second. Um, the, the Pharisees, and this might actually surprise you, but they start out as pretty good guys. They have good intentions. And you remember when the Greeks were shoving their culture down Israel's throats, telling them this is how you should live? The, 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 the Pharisees are this group of separatists. Think like the Jerusalem Tea Party. We're not gonna take it. No, we ain't gonna. No? All right. I really thought that was going to move into like a Disney musical, but all right, whatever. Spirit didn't move. Um, so the, these men, in fact, the word Pharisee means to separate. And so what they're saying is we are not going to compromise God's law, God's way of living with the Greek culture and the Greek way of living. And that's a good thing, right? They say we need to study and know and teach what God's word says so that we don't become like the culture around us. Now there's some validity there, but where they start to veer off course is that in an effort to clarify and interpret God's word, they actually start to layer all these extra rules that were not God's original law around these laws, and it was called a midrash. Now the midrash which, other than being something you would definitely want to get checked out by your local physician, uh, it's this, and it wasn't even pronounced like that, so um, it's a group of sermons and sayings intended to clarify and interpret the law of Moses. So here's these 613 rules. Now, as if that wasn't enough, they say we're going to add, we're going to kind of explain what these rules mean and how you carry them out. So you think about like the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day was set apart to worship God, um, to, to keep it holy. To, they were supposed to abstain from work, right? Set apart from the other six days when they did work. But here's what happened. They took this Sabbath day and they broke it into 39 categories, and they defined what work is, is and what work isn't. And then each of those categories had subcategories and like sub-subcategories. And where it got insane. Like they would tell you literally this is how many steps you can take before you've worked. 42, 43, lightning bolt, right? Or, or when you're writing, this is how many letters you can write and then it becomes work. And they started to put this hedge around the law saying this is what it means to obey God's law. And over time, they completely lose the heart of what God had originally intended. Jesus said, how do we sum up the law? It's to love God and love his people. And they got so left of center of this, in an attempt to clarify what God had said, they became known for their outward actions and lost the inward spirit. They became proud and self-righteous. These men started looking around, walking around, going, look at how I'm keeping the law. Praying out loud so everybody could hear them, touting their law-keeping ways, strutting around town for everyone to see. Look at me. And here's the question. I mean, how does my heart tend toward pharisaical understanding of God's word? 
And oftentimes, and what the Pharisees were guilty of was adding to God's word. Here's what God said, and we're going to add to it, and we're going to treat what we've said the same way that we treat what God said. What traditions do I add to God's word? And, and now I'm going to be up front here. These are usually good things that become ultimate things. These are good things, but become ultimate things. And in an attempt to clarify what God said, we pull a Pharisee and develop our own midrash, which is never good. Um, we've been called as a church to meet together, right? I mean, Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. There, the context for uh, discipleship is a community. But, but here's what we do with church attendance. We start to try to clarify what church attendance looks like, how often you should come, and we make it law. Thou shalt cometh every time the doreths are openeth. I'm going to see you Sunday morning, Wednesday night. You better be in a home group. And if you miss, you come two times next week, right? And, and what we do is we start to say, this is what it looks like. And if you're not in here, God's not happy with you. And, and, and we lose the heart of gathering together for outward form. And so maybe you're coming to church some winter morning and there's a group of, of families, some poor family that veers off the road, crashed. They're like huddled up trying to keep warm. They have a little baby, right? Trying to keep it. Nope, got to make the 11 o'clock, right? And you just zoom on by them. Because we're supposed to be in church. It's a good Christian. I saw this phrase and, and it really kind of convicted me this week. My preferences are not the Bible. My preferences are not the Bible. And we brush up against some touchy subjects, right? Style of worship. Did God say, did he say that drummers are going to go to hell? <laughs> and what about, I remember I came in one Sunday morning and the, usually the, the custodians always set up the chairs. And uh, there's this nice kind of array. And I walked in one morning, different setup. Somebody else had set up the chairs. I almost stroked out. They're supposed to curve, not be straight. Are you kidding me? We can't worship, right? How often things that we prefer or are used to or our traditions, we make those commandments and we create a new law to judge other people by when they're not living up to our standards that, by the way, we're not keeping either. And if it's not clear in scripture, man, I better not push it on other people and condemn them for not doing it. So that's the Pharisees, adding to God's word. The Sadducees are actually very different from the Pharisees. Even though they're often lumped together, they're very different people. The Sadducees were this ruler, this group of rulers. They kind of represented the high class, the elite, kind of the, the who's who of, of Judah, right? Um, they're kind of the elitist, the wealthy. They, they came from the line of, remember Levi, the people of Levi, the Levites were to be the, the priests. Well, the priest at the time when Solomon built the temple, his name was Zadok. And that Zadok, that name is where they got Sadducees. It comes from the root Zadok. And they're, they're of that line of high priests. But man, have they drifted far from God's original intent for a priest. They're this pretty small um, party, but they are a powerful party. They rule um, or really control what's known as the Sanhedrin. You've probably seen that word in the New Testament. This was sort of like the Supreme Court or the High Court uh, in Jewish rule. And they were still under the Greeks or under the Romans, but this Sanhedrin kind of took care of internal affairs. If there was some in-house legal disputes, the Sanhedrin would oversee that, and the, really the Sadducees were the ones 
ones pulling the puppet strings of the Sanhedrin. Now, they went the opposite way of the Pharisees. Whereas the Pharisees were separatists, the Sadducees is what we would call a conformist. They conformed to the Greek lifestyle, the Greek worldview, the Greek value system. And instead of rebelling against them like the Pharisees, they actually admired the Greeks and wanted to become more and more like them and started to drift farther and farther away from God's original heart. And part of what they do is they became known as what we would call secularists, where they start to deny, and you can see how this would get scary, they start to deny much of the Old Testament. They said the first five books, Moses's, were cool with that. But the rest of them, the history, the Psalms, like, we don't know about that. They start to deny that. In fact, they even start to deny the supernatural. And, and we see in the New Testament that they don't believe in a resurrection from the dead. It's going to have some major implications. And so they move farther and farther away from, from God's word. And I think, man, today in the American church, probably there are more guilty of becoming a Sadducee than a Pharisee. Probably. Maybe not. I don't know. But what happens is we get sucked into the values and the culture around us. We claim we follow Jesus, but we're really following Uncle Sam. And I know this is a kind of a tough weekend to bring that up, right? We, uh, the, where where the Pharisees were adding to God's word, the Sadducees are taking away from God's word. Um, we celebrate this weekend our independence. And man, I, I think we ought to celebrate that. Um, but remember where our real home is. <laughs> where our real citizenship lies. And my first allegiance is not to this country, it's to Jesus and to his kingdom. And what happens is our culture around us, we say we pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Now, any of those things in themselves are not inherently evil, but when they become an ultimate thing, they do. And here's the way I would say it. Now, how do I know if I'm following Jesus, if, I, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm a part of God's kingdom, or if I'm really chasing after the American dream? What is it that I most want from my own children? Like, what would define success for my own child growing up? And, and, and if we're honest, a lot of times, man, I want them to get a good education so they can have a good, successful career, have a white picket fence, have a nice family, retire early, have fun on the weekends, and yeah, be a good person, yeah, church attendance. But ultimately, my heart for them is to be safe and successful. And we, it's really capitalism with some drink, Jesus sprinkles on top. Or is what I desire most deeply for my child that they would know Jesus? And that they would follow Jesus. And that they might even suffer with Jesus. That they would find satisfaction only in him. And that their priority would be to tell the world about Jesus. To, to spend their time following him, loving others well, giving generously. And at the end of their life, not hear, well done on your 401k, but well done, my good and faithful servant. So that's a peek behind the curtain. We've seen the actors, we've seen the backdrop changes before the New Testament curtain rises. And man, you think if you're Israel in this time, it's a hard thing. 
It's a hard thing to keep the faith. You've had all these monstrous empires pillaging you from without. You've got these corrupt leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, defiling from within. Add to that their own sinful, faithless hearts that have been very well documented in the Old Testament. And it's bleak, man. It's bleak. But we need to remind our own faithless hearts that in the darkest of times, God is in control. And man, this is so cool. When, when uh, Daniel is interpreting the dreams, before he gets into those world powers and the whole thing, this is how he opens it, in prayerful worship. Look at what he says to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, that, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. And then check this out. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. And I imagine that this truth, that God is in control, this would have been a very difficult thing any time for a Jew in, in the history that we just described to believe being exiled in Babylon, being ravaged by the Greeks and the Romans, watching their fellow citizens get murdered, their temple and everything they believed in being burnt to the ground. There's no prophecies. There are no godly leaders. God is silent. And I think it's easy for us in 2017 when we read the headlines and we look at this world and what's going on, and we look at our own country and what's going on, and our own lives may feel like they are spinning out of control. And this truth, that he's got the whole world in his hands, feels a million miles away. And we sang it, you are God alone. In good times and bad, you are on your throne. But we know the story. Has anyone seen what the Roman Empire is up to lately? The Greeks? They're off the scene. These world powers, they rise and fall, but God is faithful to his people, and he keeps this little light, this little flickering light, flame on the Jewish people. He, he, he preserves this remnant, and through these 400 years, he's faithful to keep his promise of the coming deliverer. And for 400 years, God may have been silent, but he was not absent. And you think, man, 400 years, how could you go that long? When you think about today, man, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left to build me a mansion. And we may not have any new books of the Bible coming in. He may not be speaking audibly, but God is still in control, and he will be faithful to build his bride that he's coming back for. Will we watch and will we wait? At the end of the Old Testament, in Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, um, God says this, look, watch, wait, pay attention, is what the Hebrew word meant. Look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. He's talking about John the Baptist. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. What did we just talk about the temple? This is huge significance for them. The messenger of the covenant. What covenant? That new covenant we talked about last week. Not just keep the law, but I'm going to give you a new heart. We're going to get the life of Christ in us. He says this, the messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely 
coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Would the people of Israel believe that over the course of the next 400 years and everything they were going to go through? And you know what? In the last book of the New Testament, we have a very similar word. This is the second last book, uh, verse in your Bible. He who is faithful, witness to all these things. This is Jesus. He says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The promised, long-awaited deliverer was coming. Would his people, Israel, be ready? We're going to find out next week. And for us today, the promised, long-awaited deliverer, he did come, and he died, and he rose again, and he's coming back. Will we, his people, watch and be ready? Let's pray. Father God, I can't imagine what your people were going through through those 400 years with these empires controlling them and taxing them and murdering them and desecrating everything that they believed in and these rulers that they could just not lean on, they could not trust, were actually leading them astray. Lord, the time must have been dark. But I praise you that there was a faithful remnant that kept hope alive by your grace and your power, and that Jesus came and he was everything that you said he was, that he came and fulfilled that new covenant, that we might have life. And now, Lord, you're calling out a people for your name. You've given us this awesome job to go and make disciples of Jesus, this deliverer. And now as we do this, it's easy to look at dark times and not believe that God is real, to not believe that Jesus did what he said he had done and that he's going to come back and do what he's promised to do. Oh, for the grace to trust you more. May we have eyes of faith to see beyond our circumstances and to know that no matter who's in the White House, no matter who seems to be controlling these world events, you are God alone. And you are faithful to your word, and Jesus is coming back. May we live in light of that. May we eagerly await his return and love people and tell them about the sweet Savior that could come back at any second. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It's in your sweet name that we pray. Amen.